0: I do truly, honestly believe that if you want to make change, you have to be part of that change. You just can't sit behind a computer screen or you can't sit on the sidelines. You have to actively get involved and make that change.
1: Hello. Welcome to the 205 Vibe podcast, where we discuss topics related to Rockford Public Schools and the larger Rockford region. I'm your host, Earl Dotson Jr. Today, uh, I'm excited to have another guest who I'm, I'm Looking forward to talking to and speaking with. Uh, we often in education talk about um, who are the important people in educating our students, right? And um, probably after parents, I would I would say that probably the most important person to help educate our educate our students are the teacher. And today I am very honored to have someone who represents teachers uh, through the Rockford Education Association. And I have the president of that association, Don Graneth, here with me today. Hello, Dawn.
0: Hi, Earl. How you doing? I'm good. How are you?
1: Thank you sincerely. Thank you for taking the time uh, to come out and talk uh, and speak about uh, education issues. Uh, I just appreciate your time and, and being here. Thank you very much. So for the people who are gonna listen to this, um, one of the things that I like to do right away is, I mean, I know who Dawn Granith is and a lot of other people know who Dawn Granith is, but just take just a couple minutes just to tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are.
0: Well, I am the proud parent to three almost 17-year-old children. They're juniors at Auburn and they keep me very busy. I also started teaching. My first teaching job in RPS 205 was fifth grade at Bayer, and then I went, and I like to tell the story that I was fired by LaVon Sheffield during the years that uh, she was here. Came back the next year as a SPED teacher at Lathrop and Kishwaukee, and then from there I became vice president of REA and then president of REA. So it's been, I've spent most of my time, all my time, um, at the elementary level. I did my student teaching at the middle school level, but I taught um, at the elementary level. I've been in Rockford for about 17 years. Um, originally graduated from pre, uh, Freeport, so yes, I am a pretzel, and um, <laughs> I take great pride in that. And um, But I think I'm also a career changer. I came to teaching... Um, Late in my career, I originally got a degree, in double mass, double major in political science and history, and then I went off and did jobs, various jobs, and then um, after having children, I decided I wanted to come back to what I originally wanted to do, which was teach. So, Thank
1: interesting. Thank you. Before we talk about your role, you know, currently as the Rockford Education Association president, I just want to just just dive a little bit deeper into, you know, obviously you've had. You know, a long, you know, prolific career in teaching. So I just wanted to just 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 a little bit more about what inspired you. You kind of talked about how you kind of had another major, but in your years of teaching at the elementary school level, what would you say you you learned about that experience or what you liked about that?
0: Well, prior to teaching, I worked in the local um, mental health um, center, Janet Waddles, when it was called Janet Waddles, and I also was involved with the community on a lot of different levels. But probably in politics, I was involved in politics. But probably the biggest thing that I liked about teaching, and one of the reasons why I wanted originally I wanted to go to school for that, and then I got hooked into the politics thing in college and decided to take that avenue. And then when I All of a sudden, I kind of looked around and I said, I I need to have an impact. How can I have an impact? And you know, in politics at that time, I was getting a little tired of doing the same thing over and over again, and I kept looking around, what can my, how can I help my community? And so I thought, hmm, you wanted to be a teacher when you were 19, 20, maybe need to go back in and look at that, so I did. So I went back and got a master's in education. And then luckily, thankfully, I was put um, teaching at Bayer. And Bayer, at that time, was the least chosen school when choice was um, happening here in RPS. And so, we had a lot of students who didn't have a lot of parental involvement. And so, we had a lot of transient kids and a lot of kids coming in and out. And what, But what was interesting is we also got a lot of students from Blackhawk Housing Project, which is right across the street. And um, my first, I remember my first, it was three days into school, one of my young men was driving me a little crazy, and I looked around the room and I said, what can I do? I didn't have a phone number for Mom, and he he didn't think I would actually ever go and visit Mom, but I did. I said, I'm, taking, I'm walking home with you today, and we're gonna go have a conversation with Mom. So I took him home, and we went home and had a conversation with Mom. And after that, I think the students in my class realized that, A, I was serious about what I was trying to do in regards to making this feel like a home and feel like a place that they could feel safe. But secondly, that I was gonna follow through with what I was what I was telling them. I think, unfortunately, a lot of our students don't always have that consistency or that uh, belief that what they're gonna see in the morning when they leave, what they leave in the morning is maybe not gonna be the same as what they come home to in the afternoon. And I also do truly believe in I still have the picture in my bedroom of John Kennedy, you know, ask, you know, that whole quote. And I do truly, honestly believe that, and if you want to make change, you have to be part of that change. You just can't sit behind a computer screen or you can't sit on the sidelines. You have to actively get involved and make that change. And so at Bayer, yes, the kid, they drove me crazy. And every day I would look at them and say, I love you, but you're driving me crazy today. Um, But I think that's the reason why, is that I saw the impact that you, as a teacher, you could have on an individual student.
1: That's wonderful. Thank you. That's a fascinating story. And so now you transition that passion from the classroom and wanting to make a difference to, you know, being in charge of a, a, a large organization and helping represent... You know, I think we are, was it four or five thousand teachers uh, in the Rockford public school system, uh, which is a huge responsibility. And so you've you know you've obviously served in the role as vice president now president. You know, for people who really really don't have a, just a good understanding of what that's like and, and that part of advocacy on in, in, in your job, what is it that you that you th- that you try to convey? I mean, what do you what do you You know, what do you feel that you're fighting for as the president of the Rockford Education Association?
0: Well, I'm going to go to the standby answer, which is the three frames of progressive unionism. It's easy for me to kind of put what we do on a daily basis into those three frames. So the first frame is salary benefits and working conditions. And that is making sure that teachers have the things they need to teach, making sure that their rights are protected and making sure that they feel that they can do their job. Second part is the professional unionism, which is how they go about doing their job, the curriculum, and making sure they have a voice in that, making sure they're not told exactly this is what to do, but that they're professionals and they're treated as professionals. And then the third aspect is social justice, because I understand that if we can make Rockford the first choice for all families, that it will enable us to get more of the things that we need to help our students. It'll help our community understand that we get them for a certain part of the day, but you, the community, get them for the rest of the day. And if we can try and make that part of, we can make the education world and safe for them in their classroom. We need to make it just as safe for them when they walk home.
1: That's, that's interesting, and and I like the way you kind of framed it in those kind of those three areas. Um, so having said that, you know, kind of having defined those in that in that way, and uh, you talk about the you know we talk about these different audiences, whether it's families, whether it's the general public. Um, and so help us talk a little bit about, um, you know, what types of issues do you think uh, do teachers deal with on a day-to-day basis that just the regular person who's sitting out there, um, you know, they, they, they probably don't understand some of the things that teachers deal with on a regular basis. Can you just give us a little bit of insight as to what that looks like?
0: So last week I attended the mayor's um The breakfast for the justice center that is going to because the mayor is talking a lot about domestic violence and um, different things like that and I sat there listening to some of those statistics and it said that seventy five percent of the juveniles in juvenile detention had been included in some sort of report or something in dealing with a domestic violence case and so those seventy five those kids that are juvenile justice were in our classrooms the day before the two days you know two weeks before two days before and so. What I think sometimes the community doesn't understand is we, our kids come to us at 7.45 in the morning or at 8.30 or 8.40, whatever time of the day, and they, we don't know where they've been or what has happened already to them in the classroom. And then they come there, and we ask them to l- live by our rules as a teacher and as a school district. And yet, sometimes they're worried about what it's like when they're gonna get home, they're worried about the food, they're worried about mom, they're worried about dad. And um, I think sometimes teachers, we are really good with our content. We understand how to teach people to read. We understand how to teach people about social studies. But we don't always understand how it is to deal with a kid who doesn't feel safe when he leaves the classroom. And so that's where I think advocating for our, our teachers to say, we need support in the classroom, but also advocating to the community to say, we need your help, we need you. To make it so that those students feel safe when they walk home and leave our classroom.
1: That that is a powerful message, right? And I don't think people, and you know, we don't get to hear that often, right? It's all it's you know it's usually kind of uh, lots of other things. Having said that, um, that that's fascinating when you talk about the, you know, some of the some of the social issues, right? That that our students deal with, and then. Sounds like you were kind of saying that oftentimes they bring that to the classroom with them and the teachers have to kind of deal with that. Just switching gears a little bit. One of the things that we we know is happening with the teacher profession, particularly in Illinois, is we talk about a teacher shortage. I believe I saw a statistic that talked about there's been almost a 75 percent reduction in the number of teachers who have applied to be certified for licenses Mm -hmm. in the state i mean which is a huge number now i have my own thoughts about why that is partly because i don't think we valued education just as a as a nation as we should valuing the teacher profession um you know i don't know if it's the economy whatever the case is you know we were dealing with these teacher shortages in your mind what do you think is like the problem of, of why Is it the perception of the teaching, perception, is the perception, I'm sorry, of the teaching profession? Why do you think we're having such a huge, dramatic decrease in teachers wanting to be teachers?
0: Well, I think you need to go back to the No Child Left Behind legislation back in the early 2000s. And from there, the federal government decided that we don't want to treat you as professionals and, and know what your kids need to know. We're gonna tell you what, what the kids need to know, and we're gonna test on what your kids need to know. And we're only gonna test in reading and math. The rest of the stuff we really don't care about, the rest of the stuff we don't really need to know about. So back then, the federal government made a decision to say, we know better than you, professional. Mm-hmm. And it has just consistently gotten worse and worse and worse. And now we've got park scores, and we have... Um, ISAT and park, and then we have all these different testing because somehow, people in the community don't believe anymore that professionals know what's right for their kids. And I think the challenge is, is that teaching was, at one time, you had the time and the ability to create relationships with students. You could spend three days on a lesson because you saw the kids weren't really getting it. But today, you have to live within boundaries of pacing guys and what's gonna be on the test. Everything is about testing, testing, testing. And I think the reason the shortage is happening is because our students are growing up in that. I can tell you, my three kids hate test days. They hate the days that they go in and do testing because all they do is they sit around and take a test for a few hours, and the rest of the time, they're just making... you know, teachers are just trying to keep them in the classroom and busy doing busy work. And as a parent, I hate the fact that my students, my kids have to take as many tests as they do. But also, as a professional, it takes so much time out of, your, out of your schedule. To do MAP testing, you could easily be doing MAP testing for two weeks in your classroom. Then you do that three times a year, then you throw in park testing, and you could easily be spending 8, to 10, 15 days just testing kids. And you then you don't, then you're like, hmm, maybe I can't spend three days on this project, whereas before I could, now I can only do one day because I have to keep going because I have to get those test scores up. And I think we've taken the professionalism out of that, and we've also taken the joy out of teaching sometimes. And it's gonna be a challenge because I think our young people also, we haven't kept up with the, with the salary. The Governor Rahner just vetoed $40,000 minimum salary for teachers statewide. And um, when you're coming out of school with $50,000, 70000 in debt for a teaching degree, that's a challenge to come out and make $33,000, $35,000 a year, pay student loans, and want to become part of the middle class. Teaching was a middle class profession, and it's starting to get to the point where teachers are working two jobs to keep in that middle class. Oklahoma, Arizona, West Virginia. It's happening across this, the nation. And it is showing that teachers want to be treated as professionals, but we also want to be paid as professionals. And I think that our young people have seen, why would, I, why would they want to go into a profession where they don't know what their salaries are gonna be, they don't know what their pensions are going to be, they don't know what their classes are going to be. I think our country has um, taken teaching and made it into a job and not a profession.
1: Man, that was he- that was heavy. Thank you. Don. No, that was powerful. You are setting up my segue so nicely. Thank you for I'm that.
0: I'm glad I could set up the segue.
1: <laughs> well, plus, I think, you know, one of the things I and just uh, on a side note, I enjoy this because it, it, it also helps educate me. So just really quickly, one of the things you really piqued my interest in what you just said, this idea of we've gotten to this whole testing culture in the teaching profession. Um, is it too late? Like, is that is that is it are we too far gone to rein that back in with on a national level on a state level that you know this is going to be our metric if you will this is going to be our gauge uh, as to how we're going to measure success on our students is it I mean is it, is it going to take some huge powerful movement from the public or is it just is it too late is that is
0: that the standard now I think it's going to take parents standing up and taking their kids out of the testing. When that happened in Washington, there was a bunch of parents that took their kids in Seattle out out of the test on testing days, and all of a sudden Seattle told um Washington DC we're not going to do this test. And I think we're if we can have more and more of parents come together to do that, I think teachers would be right behind them because we understand that sometimes the um, one-day test does not show the growth of our students. But unfortunately, politicians like easy answers, and this is an easy answer. Test scores are an easy answer. You can compare one, they all take the same test, they all take get the same results, and one could be higher or lower. It's an easy thing for them to say. And I think politicians just historically um, don't understand what it takes to be an educator, and they also um, wanna put the blame somewhere sometimes, I think. Um, and we're an easy target because we have the kids for a certain amount of the time. But what I respond to when I talk to the mayor or talk to a state senator is, well, yes, we do get them for a significant amount of time, but so do you, Mr. Community. You get them, you get them more time, too. And if we, can make, if we can work together to use our time that we have with our students to the best that they can get we're going to get better results out of school and you're going to have less crime, you're going to have less issues, you're going to have less domestic violence, but you've got to do it together. And I think sometimes the politicians just want to easy answer.
1: S- speaking of easy answers, uh, I'm sure you've heard this probably as long as you've been teaching or in the profession. And I, I unfortunately, I've, I've heard this as well, but this, this conversation mm-hmm. around, you know, when we talk about outcomes and student achievement, right, and, and how we use testing oftentimes to measure and gay or graduation rates, whatever, on track, whatever those metrics are that we, we use to gauge how we're doing as a, as a system, as a district. So one of the things we've always we've heard about are, for example, closing the student achievement gap. I've been hearing that for as long as I've been around, um, you know, and particularly for minority students, right, um, you know, how do we close your, the achievement gap? Um Why do you think that has been that particular goal has been challenging in terms of you know reaching that and difficult to address? What is it that we were missing there? What is it that we don't know in terms of just how the the difficulty behind uh, closing the student achievement gap?
0: Well, I think it goes back to the d- challenges that we're having with within, in the nation right now, which is white privilege. I think we've have, never fully address some of the racial issues that come along with um, what you as a human being bring to the situation. So I think the challenge that we have in education is that we have a very small minority popula- minorities, minority population that are teaching. In Rockford, our numbers are not good, and I know we continue to try and address them. But even nationally, our no- the numbers of teachers who are minorities who are teaching is actually getting smaller and smaller. And part of that is, is that when you're a student and you don't see anybody that looks like you teaching you, it's a challenge to to be able to create connections sometimes if you don't always understand that I'm different. That's not, not... different isn't bad. And I think sometimes um, we always think that different is bad, it's not. But unfortunately, our teaching population is about 85 80 85% um, white women. And I think the challenge has been is getting them to understand that our students come to us from different places than what we've grown up learning about and that we need to take the time to be able to understand that things, they're just different, and we need to figure out and celebrate those differences, but we have to acknowledge those differences. And I think our country, our community, and our school district We don't always want to acknowledge that. That's kind of the big elephant in the room is nobody wants to talk about race. Nobody wants to talk about its impact on our students. And I think, um, as educators, we need to be out in front making sure that we understand that, yes, we, we each come to the classroom with our own thoughts, our own ideas, and we just need to figure out how do we get everybody to do the best they can. That takes an honest discussion. That takes admitting that sometimes you might think of Things differently and you might not agree with everybody. Um, unfortunately, our current um, governor our current governor and our current president um, just don't are, are fanning the flames and making it harder and harder to have those open true discussions. And I think and it and that bubbles down into the classroom. And I think sometimes educators don't know how to have those discussions and feel safe about having those discussions. And I think in that regard, some of our, um students that might need those discussions and might need some extra help aren't always getting it because we're just not willing to actually have the honest discussions about what they need.
1: That that was that was awesome. Thank you. I mean that I I think uh, just hearing you hearing just just talking about it sometimes I think uh is helpful. Um and so before we lose that thought, I just again um you kind of gave a global kind of um kind of rationale explanation about minority teaching. I've been hearing that sentiment a lot lately, that these, this idea that somehow t- uh, hiring teachers that look like the students that they're teaching actually matters. So it sounds like you're saying you believe that as, as well. You, you do think that matters. Uh, and, and so having said that, um, you know, you talked about some of the other issues and the reasons why you think that has kind of stymied uh, that effort, uh, kind of the, the race relations in our country, in our state, et cetera, et cetera. So people, for, for those who say, well, hey, you know, school district, all you need to do is go to some historically black colleges. You know, all you need to do, is you guys, all you need to do is, is this and all, you know, there are lots of experts who have all these great ideas about how to recruit uh, minority teachers and we're not just talking about African-American, there's Hispanic students as well. Um, what, what do you think about that? I mean, how, why do you think that other than, is there anything else other than the things that you've mentioned as to why we think that that is so difficult? Yes, we know the numbers of teachers who are going into the profession, et cetera, et cetera, but how do you make that an exciting profession again for minorities and get them back engaged and wanting to be teachers?
0: The challenge is is that we make the, just getting your license is sometimes economically prohibitive to um, students of minority students. So an example of that is um, you come from a low-income family, you're the first generation to go to college or the first person to become a teacher, and all of a sudden, you have to student-teach. You have to go without an income for 8, 10, 12 weeks, and you have to live in a house, you have to drive a car, you have to pay for your food. You're still living during that time frame. But you don't have any money because you're working, you're becoming and learning how to be a student teacher, and so you have. And then you might have a, you might have family that um, don't that cannot afford to cover you during that 12 month time, 12 week time frame. Then the next problem comes into is all the costs associated to getting your to getting your certificate, and it can cost anywhere between 600 and 800 dollars to just to, to pass, take the tests pass the tests and get into to get your license. And so, we're thinking, oh, they've been four years of school, and now, all of a sudden, they, $800, that shouldn't be an issue. But that's another hurdle for somebody that comes that is maybe a first-generation um, college graduate that they have to overcome. And so, then, they come into a profession after they've spent forty fifty thousand $50,000 on a college education, they've had to pay all these fees to get to be their license, then they get a job that's at $32,000 a year. And how do you go about in making that enticing to somebody who's um, of a minor, you know, that wants to create a family for the, you know, that has never been to college or has this is their first time? How do you make that exciting to make thirty-two thousand dollars a year and you're make you've got X number of dollars in student loans when um, you know people that are graduating from college can go and be a social can go. We just lost somebody who's going to go and be a real estate agent in Texas because they speak Spanish, and they can go down there, and he figures he'll make about $70,000 a year. Well, you know, when you're trying to talk to him about benefits and TRS, they're 22 years old. They don't care about any of that type of stuff. They care when they have a family, they will, but not when they're 22 years old. And I think we also... Rockford um, doesn't make it... is not sometimes a friendly place for people of color. And I think it's hard for um, our city to attract and keep our um, minority students because it's this hasn't always been a friendly place for them. And I think we've trying to work on that with the, with the mayor, and the and the district is working on that with a tr- pathway for students that are our students. Hopefully, they'll stay here. But I think nationwide, I think we put a lot of barriers to success for student minority students, and I don't think we give them the opportunities. There's, they're just supposed to know things. And sometimes when you're a first-generation minority kid whose parents don't know how to do student aid or don't know how to get the jobs, I think we expect a lot of them without giving them a lot of support.
1: So, Dawn, we, one of the, I just want to go quickly back to... Uh, we, we were talking about the standardized testing and some of the problems with that. Um, and, and so uh, one of the things we know it's coming, speaking of testing, uh, the month of October... We know we're going to get some scores right on our school, Illinois school report card. And um, from what I've hear, what I hear, that it's just not going to look good for Rockford, right? It's going to be a very, some very uh, disappointing numbers. And it's just not going to look good in terms of um, our growth and some of the targets that we wanted to hit. So the, there are going to be people who are going to listen to this podcast and they're going to want to hear what. Don Granth, the Rockford Education Association president, said on behalf of teachers, uh, as to when that data comes out, right, it's gonna obviously people are gonna there be the gnashing of the teeth and what are we doing wrong and what's going on at the Rockford Public School District, et cetera, et cetera. You know, what what do you think? Just to adding some context to those scores that are gonna come out. Um, you know, what, what's the best way to kind of talk about that? I mean, the scores are the scores. We, we kind of know kind of some of the challenges of, of, of standardized testing to your point that you made earlier. But what is it that we can say uh, in, inside of the educational institution to help um, help people understand, um, you know, and, and, and provide some context to the scores that are going to be released in October?
0: Our students aren't a test score our students are come to us every day with their challenges and we as educators deal with their social emotional, we deal with their education, we deal with their transportation, we deal with all that other stuff. But I think what educators would like the community to understand is we are teaching our kids, we have growth data that shows that our kids are learning and that the park test is, is taken in April for four days, and it does not indicate what our students know or don't know. It is um, better, as an educator and as a parent, to see that my kid went from reading and knowing seven letters at the beginning of kindergarten to be able to read three-letter words at the end of kindergarten. Now, that's growth. Now, that might not all show up on a test, but I know that when my kid came in, he grew and was able to learn his letters by the end of the school, end of kindergarten. My ninth grader, we all know that um, you know sometimes math is an issue for ninth graders. But you know the challenge we have is that sometimes the tests don't always aren't accurate replicas of what we are teaching in the classroom. And sometimes what it needs in a day is you might need to learn about how to, to control your anger. You might need to learn how to pace yourself and do your homework. And those are things that teachers do on a daily basis. We also teach our kids how to shake hands. We also teach our kids how to stand in line. We teach our kids on a, how to be good citizens. And that's not something you can put onto a test. And I think the district has worked really hard in, in creating a viable curriculum for all grades and for all our students. And when we can have a focused um, curriculum and teachers focus on curricul- on a certain curriculum, we show, we show great results. Now we just need to do that um, district-wide. And I think that most recently you can point to is what's happening in our early childhood program. For the kids that go into kindergarten are more prepared than other local areas because we've been focusing in early childhood on these sk- on these skills. And some of these skills aren't letter recognition. Some of these skills are they can control their own emotions. They can stand in line. Those are things that on a regular standardized park test, are you going to be able to, to judge those things. But those are things that we know as educators they need to be able to do in order to, to um, become good students. And I think um, while I'm disappointed that the scores aren't going to, you know replicate or show some of this growth, I do think that our teachers um, see the growth on a daily basis, and they also know that one day's test scores does not show and prove what a child can do.
1: You have been the uh, Rockford Education Association president for how long now?
0: Seven years.
1: Seven years. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) Um, One of the things, you deal with all sorts of issues, but one of the issues that you've dealt with recently Uh, is the the Supreme Court case Janice versus AFSME, which essentially said and correct me if I'm wrong but essentially said uh, that uh, teachers who join the association uh, they don't have to pay they don't have to pay is it their fair share dues uh, and they don't have to necessarily even if they want to be a member of the union or not right is that essentially kind of what happened Um, so now that that decision has happened Um, you've had some time to think about it and contemplate it uh, in terms of what it means for your association now that you've had time to think about it what are your thoughts on the the case itself and what it means for the Rockford Education Association moving forward
0: there are national organizations and national um, political groups that are scared of the collective power of unions and so this um, Case was a way that they thought they could try to break the unions apart, and I can I am standing here today to tell you that that's not the case. What happened in Virginia? What's happening in Oklahoma? What's happening in Arizona? What's happening in Illinois? Is we are we know that our collective power is what is is what's going to be good for our students and what's going to be good for educators, and so um, I we're taking yes it was a it was a change in business. And the change in business now is that we need to go out and talk to our members about the benefits of the collective good and also what unions do to protect them and and our students. And we have done um, many conversations with our new teachers. We had a whole day with our new teachers and we talked to them about what the union brings to them and also what it brings to our students. Um, We are constantly fighting for smaller class sizes. We are constantly fighting for the for the things that our teachers need to teach our kids. We are constantly fighting for air conditioning. We are constantly fighting for new buildings. We are constantly fighting for um, you know adequate space for our students to learn. Those are things that, because we have a, a contract, that we can enforce and we can say to the to the administration, look, these things are important to us, but they're also important to the community and to our um, students. Because our students' learning conditions are our teachers' working conditions. So what's when we say that we want air conditioning, that is, yes, teachers, one person in the room, they would love to have air conditioning. But they also know that their students need to learn and that if they learn better, if they're not worried about our sitting there fanning themselves or drinking two gallons of water on a daily basis. And so, collectively, we can push the district to say, we want air conditioning. And we can collectively do that by talking to school board members. And I think the power is in the numbers, and I think um, I am happily, happily here to say that I think the country has shown these right-wing political groups that you're not gonna break us, we're not going away, we are going to continue to fight for our kids, and we're going to continue to fight for education. And I think it's something that um, when, I, when I spoke to the new teachers on New Teacher Orientation, they were happy to have that back up, and they were happy to see that we were continuing those fights. So I it, it, the case is what it is. We'll go forward, but I am happy to say that we are still here fighting.
1: Uh, you, you mentioned you have been here, the REA president now, for seven years. Uh, that's about the same time I think Dr. Jared and his team has also been uh, in the district as well, which means that you all kind of you kind of came in together uh, to kind of to approach and tackle some of the same issues. Just talk a little bit about you know obviously to have good outcomes and to address some of the the issues that you've raised. It's important, I guess, in my mind that you know you the you as the leader of the association, Dr. Jared. Kind of the, representing the leadership of the school district that you all kind of work together. Uh, what had, just talk a little bit about what that relationship has been like, and you know what do you think you all have done well together? Uh, as, since you kind of been here at the same amount of amount of time, why just talk a little bit about why that relationship is important, and what's that been like? Kind of getting to know him and working with him, and some of the things that you think you all have done that have that have been positive uh, together.
0: Um, our district has, before Dr. Jarrett, had a, unfortunately, a long history of instability. And teachers didn't know from one day to the next who was going to be their boss or who was what they were going to be expected to do. And so when Dr. Jarrett came on as um, superintendent, we had already had a chance to work with him for the year that he was assistant superintendent. And um, he came on, and one of the first things that he said. We said something like, um, well, um, I need to do this or I need to do that, and he looked at me and he said, no, we need to do this. And I think that was kind of the turning point for it because a lot of the times, we have always been an us versus them, um, union versus administration. And yes, there are times I argue and still argue and don't agree with the superintendent, but what we do is we sit down and we say, okay, these are my interests. These are your interests. How can we come to something that meets the interests of both parties? And um, and over the years, we have had good, honest discussions about some of the challenges that teachers face. And then he's also been very good about telling the challenges that he faces in the community when he goes and talks to the community. And um, you know, so we are constantly trying to figure out how we can move things forward, but yet also taking into the economic restraints, into the Community restraints and into just how much change can a human being take in a certain amount of time. But I think the biggest thing that um, I think I would like to talk to people about is that when you, even though collaboration, you can have discussion, you can work towards a common interest, doesn't mean that you're not fighting and arguing with one another. I think sometimes that's what people think when they, we talk about collaboration or they talk about IBB or they talk about that is they just think that we're in the big room drinking, you know, drinking uh, and having fun, and we're talking unicorns and rainbows it is not unicorns and rainbows when we're talking about what st- teachers need to teach their kids. And we're not always going to agree. We're not going to have come out of there saying, this is something that I agree with. But there is there are times when we know that we have to reach some sort of consensus. And I think Dr. Jarrett has shown over the years that he's willing to sit down and listen and talk. And he's also willing to um, hear what we have to say, doesn't always agree with it. But at least he understands where what the side of the teacher is coming from, and we try to come to some sort of consensus. And I think that's also important with the school board members because we have good relationships with the school board members, and I think part of it is I hear what they say, they hear what we say, and then we try to come to some sort of realization that we can't always agree what we want to do, but yet, we can always agree that we need to keep moving things forward in regards to our students.
1: Um, just, just quickly about that, though. Do you think, do you think that it's frowned upon by some of your members the fact that you have a, a close relationship with uh, the or that you're you're willing to work with the superintendent? Do you think some of your members, um, you know, look at that negatively?
0: I think the challenge is the communication because I think sometimes when you get there's a lot of things that are stopped before members know what's going on with it because of the conversations that we have with administration, not just with the superintendent, but with the, with the entire administration. And so, sometimes, you know, somebody down here will come up with an idea, and I go, oh, oh, whoa, wait, wait a second, that's not always that's not a good thing. And so, we stop the stuff that used to come into teachers' classrooms on a daily basis. And the challenge is, when you can't, it's hard to talk about those things that you stopped because people in the buildings don't ever see those things that you stopped. Now, some of the things we don't always stop. There are still some challenges and stuff that go through, but there are a lot of things that, because of the discussion that and also because we bring teachers to the table, we have a huge amount of people that are dealing with curriculum, that are dealing with building maintenance, that are dealing with um, instructional counsel, and there's a lot of people that listen to those, or those groups and I think a lot of things happen there that get the teacher voice in the room and is able to get things better so that they do when they do go to the classroom, they can at least be manageable and stuff, and be workable in the classroom. And I think sometimes um, members don't always see that because it's hard to point out the negative. And, um, but it's, you know, so I think that's the challenge. When I talk about collaboration, I think people think it is, they think of it as sunshine and rainbows. and. My response to it is collaboration is meaning that our voice is in the room and that we have an opportunity to say what we think is good for kids and good for teachers. And they don't always have to agree, but at least in collaboration, we can sit down and try and figure out a a consensus and come to a consensus on a result.
1: Uh, just for the listening audience uh, you you said i b b just for for them that that means interest based bargaining just or so, just for those who uh who who wanted to know what that meant um just a couple more questions Don and again, thank you for your time um you know one of the things we we hear sometimes we hear from the public this idea that um you know we you know we, I heard you mention you talked about uh, some of the challenges dr Jarrett faces when he's out in the community one of those particular groups is we hear this this term taxpayers and uh, the taxpayers who pay the bills here and then this uh, property taxes you know being high in rockford and um, you know having they you know wanting some type of accountability system um, for the money that they pay for our educational product um, what do you say to those folks who who come uh, who come with that argument about, you know, hey, you you should be more sensitive and being good stewards of our dollars and
0: taxpayer dollars.
1: I mean, what what do you what do you say to those folks who who um, who feel that way?
0: It shouldn't matter what a student's zip code is as to what kind of education they receive, and I think um, it's not fair. When you have communities in North Shore Chicago that are spending $20,000 per student, when you come to Rockford and we're spending $6,000, $7,000 a student, that's not fair. Our students deserve better, and our students deserve to be getting the same education no matter what zip code you live in, and we're an urban district, and a lot of the time, our students come to us having more needs, and the state of Illinois should fund those needs because our needs are different than, than other school districts that are around us. It's not fair that our taxing system and our legislature hasn't realized that your zip code shouldn't matter what kind of education you get. That's Unfortunately, that's the world that we live in, and our community needs to understand that we are teaching and doing things with our students that maybe some other communities in the state don't have to deal with and that we need the extra support and we need to be able to, to help our students grow and strive and become a 21st-century student in a 21st-century um, community. But I don't think it's fair to blame the teachers for wanting um, to be part of the middle class. It is. We are professionals, we deserve to be paid as professionals, and we also understand that we do need to be stewards of the taxpayers' money, but yet, we also need to provide the best that we can for our kids, and so that's why we continually advocate to our state senators and our state representatives and to our governors and to everybody else that will listen to us that we need to be able to provide the things that our students need to learn. And the problem is is that we're not getting it, and the problem is, is that we have um, people say, well, the, the taxes are so high. I get that, and I understand that. And we are trying and working towards making this a community that our students wanna come back to and our community wants to grow better. But it is really and truly not fair that our students' education is based on their zip code.
1: Uh, just for those who are listening to this, I just want you to know that I, I've just enjoyed this past moment uh, as Dawn was explaining this because her fist is bald and she's kind of pounding the table a little bit here. Uh, so I just, uh, I just enjoyed that. I want everyone to know that, that uh, she's obviously she's passionate about all the things she talks about, but uh, just enjoyed that. Um, Dawn, just a couple other things really quickly. You mentioned uh, as an example, of kind of some, one of the issues you're dealing with, uh, for example, is air conditioning, you know, in the teaching and learning environment. Uh, that's something that needs to be addressed. I'm curious, what are some of the other things? You know, you talk to your members all day, uh, every day. What, what are, what are just to give the, the, the people who are listening to this podcast, what are some of the things you hear from teachers that they care about the most? What, is, what kind of things surface and bubbles to the top?
0: Um, They care about having adequate supplies to teach their kids. They care about um, having um, the adequate space. Sometimes we put too many kids in a classroom that's really small. They care about um, having people there that understand and they can go to that know and understand our kids dealing with social-emotional issues. Um, having a social worker in every building would be a huge step in the right direction. They also care about um, giving our students things that they need in order to be able to grow. So example would be, um, I had a teacher who needed notebooks. And so, what other profession do you know that they give discounts at Target to purchase school supplies? They don't do that for doctors. They don't do that for lawyers. They don't do that for engineers. But yet, it's okay that our community and our country has said, teachers, go out and spend $500 of your own money. And because we, as an as an administration, can't afford to pay for the notebooks and the crayons and the markers that you, we know you need to do in order to do, the, do your lesson, but we're not gonna provide that. Um, what other profession goes and buys candy and provides birthday parties, snacks, and all that other stuff? those That's what teachers do on a daily basis. So I think if one of the things I hear from teachers is stop the testing, help us get air conditioning in our buildings, help us get the things our students need in order to be able to become better citizens, and that is some sort of social work, that is some sort of behavior intervention, that is some sort of intensive support to our kids because some of our kids are coming to us in kindergarten knowing no letters, knowing no sounds, and yet we're, by the end of kindergarten, we're expecting them to be reading. That's a long way to go from, you know, September to June and to teach them everything that they need to do to be able to read. And I think having smaller class sizes is also something that teachers want because they know that the more attention that they can give to their students, the better the outcomes will be.
1: Dawn, I'm smiling. I'm smiling because I've known you for some years now and we've worked together on so many things. And I don't One of the reasons I'm excited about this new format and us conversating and having this discussion is that I don't think I've ever heard you. You know, answer these questions in in this type of very comprehensive way uh, that makes it so much very understandable for me, just in terms of the things that you care about and that your membership cares about. So, again, thank you for that. Um, lastly, um, when you look back on your tenure here and, and the time you've been here working uh, not just as a teacher, but uh, as a, a leader in the Rockford Education Association, working with Dr. Jared and this administration, you know, what what will you want to look back and say, "Hey, that you know, this is this is, was this was something we accomplished, right? This was something a success. What what do you kind of aspirationally hope that that looks like uh, when you're done?"
0: Um, I probably look back towards the. Um new mentor program and also the pathway because part of that conversation with the superintendent started when I was first president, he was first superintendent is, I kept saying, we have to do something to help our new teachers as they walk into the profession. We have to give them more support. Because otherwise, we're just going to keep churning and churning out the new. The new teachers are going to keep going and leaving us, and we're going to keep getting a new teacher. And we all know that new teachers, your first year of teaching, you're just trying to keep your head above water. And that sometimes, as you get more experience you become a better teacher. And so constantly having first and second year teachers is not good for our kids. We need to have teachers with experience. So one of the things that we did was we created the new teacher mentor p- uh, program. We've also given them salary credits for it. We've created helped to do the RU pathway. And another thing we also talked about and what we were helpful in doing is the facilities plan. Um, we knew that our teachers and our kids were in buildings that were crumbling around them. and um, we stood and said we need to make sure that our kids have 21st century facilities to be able to learn. Now that would include air conditioning in all the other buildings, so I have to keep <laughs> getting that point in. But, um, but I do. But we were in. We were part of that conversation with the community to say. We, we we need this we will use the dollars to do this because we can't use those aren't dollars that can be used for salaries but we also know that facilities is what we need for our kids so we did that and then also probably trying to use the ibb problem solving process and trying to get that pushed out into the buildings is one of the things that we're still working on today but hopefully we've gotten it to the point where we're trying to understand that the problems get solved at the building level and don't always have to rise to a level of administration and union um, leadership. So I think we've done that in some most of our buildings, and we're hopefully going to get that done in more buildings. But those are kind of the things that I've looked back on, and I say that we had an impact in making change.
1: Fascinating. All right, last question. I ask every guest these questions. So Don Granith, you are... At home or wherever you are, you got some downtime. What is Dawn Grant's favorite movie that she's gonna pop in and and watch? What are you? What are you? What are you? What are you looking at? What are you gonna watch? Uh,
0: my favorite movie is Pretty Woman. Pretty
1: Woman, great Pretty choice. Woman. Um, you are. It's Mother's Day, and uh, or it's your birthday. Uh, what would be? Don Grand that's either favorite food to sit down and eat or a restaurant like if you had your, your last meal what do you want
0: well, unfortunately it's closed now it used to be called Club Esquire in Freeport and it's not there anymore but that's where I used to spend all my birthdays when I was growing up um, probably, so anything on the menu or just because everything it was, was good anything on the menu i've kind of switched back and forth but they always used to give me a kitty cocktail whenever i was <laughs> younger <laughs> it's one of the things i always remember um recently with my children i would say um social or green fire
1: ah very good and then lastly uh you're at home relaxing and you want to hear some good music what, what are you putting in a cd player
0: uh, this again dates me um john Mellencamp. Is the, is the person who I listen to the most. Awesome selection.
1: Dawn Grant, ladies and gentlemen, On, thank you for being on the 205 Vibe. And I really appreciate you taking the time to, to be here and talk with us today.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Appreciate it. Take care. Thank you for joining us on the 205 Vibe podcast. Please join us for our next episode. If you'd like to comment on the show, please call us at 815-490-4117. Leave us a voice message and tell us what you think. Thanks for listening.